0: have your Bibles with you this morning. Open them to the book of Galatians, beginning in chapter 2, where we'll be reading the first 10 verses this morning. As we are working through uh, some historical figures in Christianity, it was, um, I think, a good idea this morning to start with a quote from one One that we just learned about in Sunday school, a man uh, who has been so influential in the church, Augustine. Augustine wrote Mighty Father, or excuse me, he wrote, Uh, It was quite competent for the apostle to say, and to say rightly, be imitators of me, as I also am of Christ. But he could never say, be justified by me, as I also am of Christ. Since there may be, and indeed actually are, and have been many who were righteous and worthy of imitation, but no one is righteous and a justifier but Christ alone. Therefore, it is said to the man who believes in him and who, who believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Now, if any man had it in his power confidently to declare, I justify you, it would necessarily follow that he could also say, believe in me. But it has never been in the power of any of the saints of God to say this except the saint of saints who said, you believe in God, believe also in me. So that, inasmuch as it is He that justifies the ungodly, the man who believes in Him that justifies the ungodly, his faith is imputed for righteousness. Augustine knew very well the importance of being justified in Christ alone. When we study, him. We are not studying someone else's history, but this is our history. This is the history of a people who have been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ and are justified by him alone. This statement is the core and central doctrine of Christianity from the earliest times even until now. It is the core doctrine that Paul has seen come under attack in Galatia. As that doctrine is under threat, it is important for us today to realize the threat that is present in Galatia is a threat that is present here as well. As we've said before, and we will say again, the greatest threat to the church, the greatest threat to your life, the greatest threat to all that you hopefully hold near and dear to you is not some sort of rogue government intrusion in your life, or even persecution from that government. It is not some sort of atheistic academia who wants to tell you how backwoods and stupid you are for believing in what they think is nothing more than myths. Isn't, it isn't even an immoral pop culture that seeks to take you away from what is good and holy and true. None of these are real threats to us. The real threat to us, the most pressing threat to us, is always... It always has been and it always will be. It is always the loss of the gospel. That is a threat that was present even before this happened in Galatia. Paul had planted the church in Galatia and he thought that it was founded well. He thought that the roots of the gospel had sunk down deeply into that church and it takes very short time for him to have left before a threat to the gospel encroaches on that congregation. It is a real threat. And even then, Paul is going to relate a story today in the first 10 verses of Galatians 2 that says this is not the first time he has seen this threat. This is an ever-present threat to us the loss of the gospel. Let us read in Galatians 2, 1-10 to the threat that is present to the gospel. Paul the Apostle writes, Then after fourteen years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, For mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised only. They asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. This is the word of our God. Paul has seen threats to the gospel before. place before us are five different threats that can easily attack the gospel, that we need to be aware of, that Paul was aware of, and he battled against. First, there is the threat of disunity. There is the threat of disunity. Paul says in the first two verses here that he was called to go up to Jerusalem. The apostles did not call for him. The church did not simply send him and say, Paul, you need to go. But there was a revelation that was given to Paul that forced him to go up. God basically told him to go to Jerusalem. So Paul went to Jerusalem. The result of that is that Paul placed his gospel before these apostles, before these pillars, before those who seemed to be influential. We know at the um, bottom of our passage that these pillars were James and Cephas, or Peter, Cephas and Peter are the same name, and John. The purpose of this, then, is so that Paul can make sure that he did not run or had not run in vain. It's a difficult purpose, because when we hear him say that, it makes it sound like well, I went up into Jerusalem because I was afraid all of a sudden that I was proclaiming a gospel that wasn't true. That, that all of a sudden I, I realized that I haven't checked with the apostles in Jerusalem to see if, if my gospel is the true gospel. Certainly those who, as he calls them in verse 17 of the first chapter, those who are apostles before me, would certainly be able to tell me if I actually preached the true, good, real gospel. And so I went up there to make sure that the gospel, that I wasn't speaking to people, I wasn't doing this in vain. I wasn't doing it worthlessly. It wasn't being thrown away because I wasn't preaching the real and true gospel. Paul can indeed be read that way, but it's really hard to read him that way, given that the entire first chapter is saying, everyone else can go to hell. My gospel is true. A man who speaks like that doesn't go to Jerusalem to check on his gospel. A man who speaks like that doesn't need to check with men to see if his revelation by God is true or not. Paul knows that his gospel is true. The question becomes, how does he then run in vain when he goes to Jerusalem? How how could that cause the downfall of his ministry if the apostles say, no, that ain't it. We know the gospel, that ain't the gospel. How might that cause Paul to have run in vain? Imagine that you are in a small town and there's a small dam and the dam begins to leak and the townspeople run down and you're slowly plugging those leaks. It is good and important work and you know that you need to plug those leaks and you are working very feverishly on it but on the far right side of that dam you can see that the embankment is starting to give way and you see that it's going to crumble and if that crumbles, then all of your work plugging those holes will be literally washed away. That doesn't mean because your work will be washed away that it wasn't necessary work, that it wasn't good work, that it wasn't true work. But it does mean practically it will not withstand the flood that will come. Paul goes up to Jerusalem not because he thinks that he hasn't been preaching the gospel correctly, not because he wants to double-check and make sure that he has got it right. He is wanting to go up to Jerusalem simply for practical matters. If he is in disunity with the apostles who are there and with the church that is there, the problem in Galatia will not be isolated. The problem will spread. The disunity will spread Paul's work on the missionary field will be slowly rolled back and undone. Much of the progress that he made will be empty and it will be in vain. Paul goes up there not to ensure that he is true, not to ensure that the gospel is right, but to ensure that all of the principal leaders see eye to eye, that there is unity about what the gospel is. He sees here the threat Of disunity. It is clear that we also need to be very careful about having disunity amongst us. Paul writes about this. Look at the vice list that he gives throughout all of his writings. And in the center of almost all of those vice lists are disunity. He, he talks about evil things. He talks about murder and he talks about sexual immorality. He talks about these things that we see as major problems. And then in the middle of it, of great importance in almost every single vice list that he gives is disunity, is dissension It is a separating of people who ought to be brought together. Even as we come to take of the Lord's Supper, when he writes so devastatingly to the Corinthians about the Lord's Supper, it is again over unity. The entire letter of 1 Corinthians, one of his angriest letters, is simply because there is disunity within the church. That is an undoing of the gospel. It is an unraveling of the gospel because it is the gospel that brings us together. If we are not together, it says something fundamental about the gospel itself. Disunity is a threat to the gospel. And Paul does not see and does not want that disunity to threaten the gospel. But that is not the only threat here. There is also the threat of legalism So there is the threat of disunity. Number two, there is the threat of legalism. Verses three and four, but even Titus, who was brought with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us to slavery. Paul had mentioned Titus before, and we don't really know why he mentions him. Barnabas, he mentions because Barnabas seems to be well-known to the Galatians. It doesn't seem as though Titus is as well-known. They don't even know that he's Greek. Paul's got to mention that he's Greek. He's not Jewish. In my head, Titus has no reason why Paul brings him along, only to stand him up there and look at the other apostles and say, should I circumcise him? And I would like to see the look on Titus's face at that moment. Titus is a test case. Titus is a Greek and Paul calls him a brother. I've brought him along because he's a brother. And I'm setting him before these apostles to see if he needs to be circumcised. Does he need to do something in order to be made right with God? Does he need to do something in order to be accepted by the people of God? This is the very center of what the issue is in Galatians and frankly in a good portion of the early church. The question becomes, then, what is justification? What is justification? The word, in its essence, is a courtroom word. It it conjures up a picture of a scene where a judge is judging and there's a prosecutor. And you can think of that prosecutor as Satan. He is the accuser of the brethren. But you can also think of that prosecutor as God himself. God is bringing charges against people. And he is prosecuting those charges against people. And he is the judge of those charges against people. And you who are in the dock, you who are in the defense, what are you going to do to clear your name? That's the question. To be justified is to be declared righteous. It is to have all of those charges shown to be frivolous and shown to be worthless. They they don't matter anymore. You are cleared of them. You are innocent of them. How are you going to do that? How do people do that today? Do you think you're going to get off on some sort of technicality that you have the heavenly equivalent of Johnny Cochran with you perhaps you think that you can bribe god somehow that you can you can Tell him how good you're going to be. You you can make promises to God and bribe your way into the kingdom of heaven as though God has anything that he needs from you. The one who has created all things can speak everything into existence, is eternally joyous and happy in and of himself, far away from any of us. He needs none of us to be eternally happy with a joy that surpasses any joy that you have ever known. He needs none of us. What are you going to give him to make him accept you? Perhaps you're just going to get off on a lack of knowledge. There's not enough evidence to convict you. There's a problem there, too, because God kind of sees everything, and he kind of knows everything, and he's going to bring up stuff that you realize is true, but you didn't realize was true until he told you it was true. The great question is, how are you going to be justified before that God? And the answer that the church came back with in resounding fashion from the very moment of the resurrection of Christ on down is that you are justified by Christ alone. He is where you Find yourself being called righteous. It is trusting in him. So that when God looks at you, as Augustine said even earlier, it is imputed to you as righteousness. That is, when God looks at you, you simply claim, I am in Christ. And what God sees when he looks at you is nothing but Jesus Christ and his righteousness. He cannot convict you, for Christ is your righteousness. You are indeed innocent because Christ has died for your sins. You are indeed innocent because Christ has been resurrected for your sins. And therefore, you are cleared of all evil that you have done. What then needs to be added to that? The second that you say, oh, oh, and I've been circumcised. You are stepping outside of Christ. And God can see you, sinner, clearly. He puts Titus in front of them. And he says, does Titus need to do anything to be accepted by God? Paul knew that answer. This doesn't mean that we shouldn't expect that there would be growth in the Christian life. It doesn't mean that we should expect that those who do sinful things should grow in their maturity and be holy as God is holy. But there is a huge and massive and heretical difference between knowing the cause of your justification and the effect of your justification. And the moment you confuse those two, you are slipping out of the grace of Christ. The cause of your justification, what causes God to say you are indeed justified, is faith in Jesus Christ alone. The effect of that is holiness as you go forward in life. But it is not the cause of it. Any sense then of legalism, of of thinking that you can do good things to earn the merit or the praise or the worthiness of heaven, that is sinful. That is anti-gospel. There is always a threat of legalism among the people of God, of thinking that they have done something or they are something that makes them superior to others, that makes them bound for hell and us saved for heaven because we are noble or pretty or we are the good ones. Listen, that is false. And the moment that that thing starts to creep into your head, you need to crucify it as quickly as you can. That is a honest and sincere threat to the gospel. You do not get to stand up like the man in Luke 18 and proclaim, even give thanks to God and say, I'm glad that I am not like that man. You need to repeatedly be the one who beats your breast and say, Have mercy on me. I am a sinner. You are saved by grace. There is a great threat of disunity in the church. There is a threat of legalism in the church, but there is also, ironically, a threat of unity within the church. There is disunity on one hand, but there is also unity on the other hand. Listen to verse 5. The center of this passage is verse 5. To them, to these false brothers who were secretly brought in, to them, we didn't yield in submission for even a moment so that the truth of the gospel might stand with you. Paul says these people were so-called brothers. He doesn't call them outsiders. He doesn't say that these are pagans who came into our our unity. People thought that they were brothers, but I'm telling you, they're not brothers. They don't understand what it means to be justified by Christ alone, and therefore they stand outside the faith. They might think that they're brothers, but they are false brothers, and they came in to spy on our freedom, implying that they were enslaved to the law. And they came to see why it is that we are free and then to put us into submission to them, to put us into slavery to them. They are false believers. It would be easy then for the pillars to have looked at Paul and said, listen, Paul, you might not like these guys, but they're good Jewish men. You might not get along with them on every theological point, but they understand the importance of Christ. You, you need to understand that we can save a good many Jews if we, if we insist in some way, shape, or form, if we come to some sort of compromise on this circumcision business, this is a major hiccup to accepting Greek pagans into the church. Even those who, who proclaim the name of Jesus, it's a major obstacle for Jewish people. And if we can sort of come to a compromise on this circumcision thing, we can win more Jews. There's an easy appeal here to numbers. You can appeal to tradition. You can say, Paul, listen, for for centuries, man, the people of God have been circumcised. We should continue to circumcise the people of God. They could appeal to tradition. They could appeal simply to efficacy. This makes all of our jobs easier. Everyone will get along There won't be this this disunity within the church. You came here because you wanted to unify us, but, but you're causing disunity within the church. This exclusive way of thinking is splitting people aside. And Paul would say, you're right, it does split people aside because this is about the truth of the gospel. The only thing that people want from others today is inclusivity. We need to be accepting of all people. And Paul says we absolutely can't. Paul is incredibly, incredibly pro-unity. He wants churches to be unity. We already talked about how important unity is to Paul, but that unity must and has to flow from the gospel. Anyone who would wish to change the gospel, to manipulate the gospel in an effort to promote unity is doing the same thing as a man who wishes a river to return to its source. It's not going to happen. The gospel is the source of our unity. The gospel is what unifies us. It is the fact that we have all been saved by the grace of Jesus Christ, that we have all been called to his cross. We are all imputed righteousness by Christ so that none of us stands above any other, so that we can forgive others as we have been forgiven. It is that that unifies us. And any attempt to unify us around something else will undo that. You cannot return a river to its source, and you cannot place unity over the gospel. It is a threat to the gospel to speak of compromise the gospel, to say that we can tweak the gospel, we can change the gospel, we can edit the gospel in a way that makes it more appealing for the world. It is perfectly okay. Perfectly okay. As a matter of fact, it is necessary to upset the world with the gospel you are not to upset them with other things. Don't be rude. Don't be arrogant. Don't be nasty. Don't be mean. Don't be self-satisfied or repugnant to them. But by all means, preach the gospel to them. If they are offended by the gospel, then they are offended by the gospel. But Paul says, you cannot give up the gospel. There is a threat of unity. Fourthly, there is also this threat of authority. Paul has already spoken about, in verse 2, those who seemed influential. In verse 6, we have him say it again. And from those who seemed to be influential, that word influential means they were reverence, they were thought well of, some people who were who are thought well of, or they, somebody made something out of them says they were people who were indeed influential they seemed to be anyways and what they were makes no difference to me god shows no partiality those i say who seemed influential he keeps downplaying them who are these people that he continually downplays the influence of and the importance of i already said that the name cephas and the name peter refer to the same man why does he have two names well cephas is his given name at least given by his mother and his father. Peter is also a given name, but Peter is the name given to him by none other than Jesus Christ, who he said on this rock, on this Peter, I will build my church. That is an influential man. That is by the word of the Lord, by the mouth of God, an influential man. Peter is no small figure in the early church. He is quite clearly the leader of the disciples. And he is quite clearly the leader of the early church. There's also James, the very brother of the Lord, who shows himself in Acts and in the Epistle of James to be somebody of great character and of high esteem in the early church. One could argue, and people have, that James outpaced Peter very, very quickly for high place in the early church. There's even John here, the disciple that Jesus loved, the one who was set apart as receiving special love and dispensation from Christ, who wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, as famous epistles in the church and the book of Revelation, a man who was of vast influence in the church. Paul looks at these men who all wrote Scripture, who we esteem as important within the early church, and he says, I don't really care what they are. We argued before that Paul is not asserting his authority simply to say, I am an apostle and you are to listen to me. But that authority goes to the gospel and he also here wants to be very, very clear that the authority of men is no authority at all. The gospel is what is true. What isn't true is that they were apostles. What isn't true is what other people thought of them. What isn't true is any of that sort of authority structure that the earth likes. What is important is that they agreed with my gospel. What is important is they were unified with me in the gospel. There is always this threat that we will start to place more authority in people and in institutions. And as far as that goes, it's not wholly bad. I would like to think that you trust me somewhat. I would like to think that you trust the elders. I would like to think that you trust the, the way that this church moves forward and trust your fellow brothers and sisters to do what is right in the Lord, trusting that as you have agreed that they are saved because you have come into covenant with them, that the Holy Spirit also works through them. I would like to believe all of those things and all of those things should also. Always be true, but you don't trust them all the way. You gauge all of us against Scripture. Always coming back to Scripture. Always judging what I say by Scripture. You don't believe it because I speak it. You don't believe it because the Pope speaks it. You don't believe it because people have spoken it. The world of Christianity and the world of truth is not a democracy. It is revelation given to us. The truth of God is given to us and we are to believe it and to preach it and to live it out. We don't rest on the authority of men. That isn't to say, that isn't to say at all that that God-given authority isn't important. And it's not to say that we should stand in disunity with those who have come before This is one of the reasons why we're reading the book that we're reading and reading the great works of men who have gone before us because we should agree with them on a great many issues. We don't do tradition and make it equal to Scripture, but we also don't toss tradition in the bin. But we read the tradition in light of Scripture. Everything is in light of Scripture, just as Paul knows that his word is true because it has been revealed to him. So we know that this word of God is true, and therefore I, the elders, your fellow believers, and people f- that are your Christian brothers and sisters who are simply dead, you judge all of that by what is true and good in Scripture. Don't believe things simply because you're told them. That is the threat of authority. And finally, there is a threat of theology. The threat of theology. Verse 10 has got to be the most out-of-place verse in all of Galatians. It just flat out doesn't belong there. Paul is is talking about these very important concepts. He's, he's talking about justification. He's talking about the end of the gospel. He's talking about the very essence of the gospel. He's talking about the importance of making sure that Gentiles are being brought into the church and how to receive one another. He's talking about how to be unified together. All of these very heady and important things. He's talking about receiving the right hand of fellowship so that he might go out being entrusted with the gospel just as Peter has been entrusted with the gospel. These are incredibly difficult things and as we will see, Paul is going to engage in some very deep and detailed arguments. There is going to be a good deal of theology that is coming our way as we go through the book of Galatians. But all the more reason why verse 10 is there. It is very easy, easy to think that all we need to do is get our theology right. It's very easy to think that... that The gospel should simply be something that we apprehend by faith. That is something that we agree with in our heads and even in our hearts we love. But the gospel is not the gospel of our brains, it is the gospel of our hands and our feet. If your theology gets in the way of you doing good things, then your theology is bad. If your theology gets in the way of you doing good things, and your theology is not the theology of Paul, and it is not the theology of the New Testament, this isn't out of place. This is right where it needs to be. Yes, the gospel is deep. It's deep enough to fill the greatest brains, but it is also good enough to fill the most empty stomach. That is the gospel that we preach. The gospel that we preach is not just a gospel of faith. It is not just a gospel of your head. It is a gospel of your heart and your hands and your feet. You are to do good. The apostles look at Paul and they say, you want to be unified around theology? That's great. You cannot then leave and forget about us poor in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was incredibly poor. It was almost destitute for Christians at this time. The poor who were Christians were cut off from any of the resources that the Jews might have because they were no longer considered Jewish. Go back and read 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 when Paul takes up this offering for the suffering and the famine relief in Jerusalem. He does it because he understands that unity means more than simply agreeing to something. Unity in the gospel has earthly effects. Gospel is not just a get-out-of-jail-free card. It is meant to affect all of a person, the whole person, as they are present here. It is the giving of resurrection to us, even as we are now in a state of mortality, even as we fade away here. So shouldn't the gospel that reaches back to us in our mortality also reach back to us with physically good things, even if they're not physically permanent things? Remember the poor, Paul says, the very thing I was eager to do. Are you eager? Eager to remember the poor? Friends, so long as we live in this world, as Luther said, this world that is with devils filled, we will never be safe. You read the passage from 2 Corinthians where Paul talks about dangers everywhere. I'm, I'm surrounded by dangers everywhere I go. I'm, dangers from Gentiles, dangers from Jews, dangers from the world, danger from the sea, danger from the sky, danger everywhere for Paul. We are filled with dangers. Dangers will always linger close. Seeking at a moment of weakness to strike and to kill us. Our enemy desires our downfall. And, That'd be known, he is powerful and mighty. If then we were on our own, we would indeed be helpless against him. And even in that, our greatest threat is not from his power, but of our own proclivity to sin. Our greatest threat is not from Satan himself, but from our own hearts that constantly talk to us to pull us away from the gospel. Our jealousy and envy will seek to rip us apart in our unity. Our pride will set ourselves up as arbiters of truth. Our desire for worldly fame will seek out numbers and compromise of the gospel. Our deep thoughts would seek to nullify the importance of God's provision for our own physical bodies and his provision of good things for us that we might share them with others. These threats these are not threats from the outside. They're not threats from governments, they're not threats from pop culture. They're threats from inside. How can we stand against these things? How can we not only not only battle a raging Satan, but also our own quieter sins? We have only one hope, and that is Christ alone the good news that Jesus Christ justifies those who believe in him, believe in this gospel, hope in this gospel, and then there is no threat, no threat in heaven or in hell that can undo you. For our God is indeed a great God, and his gospel is powerful and mighty. Let us pray. Father God, you are kind and good to us. And we are thankful, thankful that that kindness and goodness allows us to escape from your wrath and your anger, which is deservedly against us in our sin. We are thankful for our Lord Jesus Christ. We are thankful that he died for our sins, that he was raised because he was holy and righteous himself. And that by trusting in him, our debt to you The wrath that you have against us is something that we no longer have to face. We are happy then this morning to sing praises to him for there is no one else to sing praises to. We are happy to proclaim you as a great God for you are indeed merciful beyond mercy and gracious beyond grace. Give us strength then to sing these with all of our heart, mind, soul, and body, that you might be praised with our lives, not just our lips, but with our hearts and the way we live our lives. May we then not only praise you and be happy and joyous before you, but let us also then be happy and joyous before the world and seek their good by giving them the gospel of our great God. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.